Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. So I was in Singapore last weekend where I attended the annual Shangri-La Dialogue, Asia's largest security forum. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the event was dominated by the US-China relationship, as most things are these days. The US delegation was led by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who asked for a bilateral meeting with China's new defense minister, Li Shangfu. The request was denied. It's worth noting that Li has been sanctioned by the United States for his role in purchasing combat aircraft from Russia, and that is something that the Turks and the Indians have done as well. Now, Austin managed to get in a handshake with Li at a dinner, but otherwise the two didn't speak with each other at all. Instead, they spoke at each other. In dueling speeches on separate mornings, Austin pointed out that talks were necessary, not a bargaining chip. The next morning, Lee got up and lamented what he perceived as a Cold War mentality and the formation of small cliques, referring to America's growing security partnerships in Asia. Now, while China shut out America, it held talks with Europe. EU foreign policy chief Josep Borrell, German defense minister Boris Pistorius, and British secretary for defense Ben Wallace all secured bilateral meetings with China's Li. All of this was happening in Singapore in the backdrop of a tense moment in the Taiwan Straits, where a PLA warship dangerously cut across a U.S. destroyer that was conducting a joint exercise with a Canadian vessel. But all of this together, and these developments highlight the problems in the U.S.-China relationship, and also how that dynamic might be a bit different from the Europe-China relationship. The West isn't homogenous after all. So where do Washington and Brussels agree on how to manage Beijing's growing clout? What are the differences in how they approach policy on China? Can Beijing exploit those differences? And what does it all mean for the world? Well, I spoke with two terrific guests on both sides of the Atlantic. Cindy Yu is an assistant editor of The Spectator and host of its excellent podcast, Chinese Whispers. She was brought up in Nanjing, China, and lives in London. And James Palmer is a regular guest here. He's a deputy editor at FP and the writer of FP's weekly China Brief newsletter. I'm allowed to say this. If it sounds like he's in a tropical rainforest, it's because he kind of is. He has a dog, a cat, and in this recording, a very vocal contingent of sparrows right outside his window. Our producer was not happy that's live TV for you. I should also note we had this conversation right before news emerged of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's forthcoming visit to China. You'll remember that was cancelled earlier over a Chinese spy balloon over U.S. soil. Clearly, moves are underway to try and resuscitate U.S.-China talks in some way, which is heartening news for all concerned. 
As always, FP subscribers send us loads of questions for these discussions. They often animate our discussions. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also watch these live in video on foreignpolicy.com. Let's dive in. Cindy, welcome to FP Live. And James, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me. Great to have you both on. So, Cindy, I'm going to start with you. When Li Shangfu agreed to meet his European counterparts, despite blanking out uh, Defense Secretary Austin, that sent a message, I guess. How do you think that message was received by European leaders? I think European leaders are seeing that um, by not having such a harsh rhetoric towards China, by not going as far with its sanctions as the US has done, which, by the way, were put in under the Trump administration on this particular general uh, rather than the Biden administration, that they're getting results for that. Um, but I think there's also a much, very much a wariness in Europe that actually China does this thing where it tries to drive wedges between Western unity. So there are also actors in Europe and in the EU in particular who are concerned about a disunited approach to China. So on the one hand, they're obviously going to take the communication, take the dialogue where they can. On the other, they are very, very mindful that this is a way that Beijing will try to kind of punish the US while rewarding the EU for saying basically a slightly softer language. So that there are those in the EU thinking, well, actually, we shouldn't be disunited on this one. And I guess that's why Austin was pointing out that talks are not a bargaining chip. James, we've been following at FP for a while now how the Biden administration seems to have softened maybe its China rhetoric just a teeny bit, switching from using one D word, decoupling, to using another D word, de-risking. What did you make of Secretary Austin's speech in Singapore in that regard? It didn't seem to be as strong a thrust towards kind of some kind of reconciliation as we've seen out of the civilian parts of the administration. And I think this points in part to a real divide between kind of the security side of the American system at the moment and the trade or diplomacy side. I think the the security and defense concerns are still so acute and the feelings about China so intense within the establishment at the moment that overrides this sort of general push towards outreach, trying to get some kind of diplomatic talks back on track, etc., which we've seen from Blinken and others. Mm. And Cindy, just to come back to the earlier point we were making, uh, I was struck by Lee's warning against what he called, quote unquote, NATO-like alliances, Mm. um, trying to align against China and Asia. And I imagine he was referring to the Quad and AUKUS, But read between the lines a little bit here, because NATO has, after all, also designated China a strategic threat. So how would that line be received in Europe? Yeah. And then there's also this idea that NATO might open an office in Tokyo. And, you know, it's interesting that Li Shanford did meet Ben Wallace. Ben Wallace here in the UK is a defence secretary, but he might also, you know, we're trying very hard in the UK to also make him the next NATO secretary general. So he has that interest there as well. Um, And, you know, beyond that, in the UK, our former prime minister, Liz Truss, has always talked about an economic NATO to tackle China in in not military terms, but in trade terms as well. Um, So I think, you know, I think I think at the moment there's a miscommunication with both sides, or maybe not a miscommunication, but a gap in understanding with both sides. China is looking at things like the Quad, like AUKUS, like all these discussions about NATO in Asia or economic NATO, and thinking these are you know NATO-like alliances trying to contain us. 
you know, trying to contain us in the way they have tried to contain Russia. And uh, Li Xiangfu was in a separate panel at Shangri-La, Cui Tiankai, who is the former Chinese ambassador to Washington, said, look how well that worked out for you in Europe. You can't control your security situation. What makes you think a NATO-like alliance will work in containing China? It was his unspoken uh, threat or suggestion. But I don't think the EU sees it in that way at all. That European countries don't see it in that way at all. When you talk to people in the UK about AUKUS, they don't see it as a um, threatening or method of containment, or at least they don't say they do, when the Chinese clearly do see it as that. So there's a massive gap in understanding here, which I think, you know, James, you picked out in your China brief from today about this understanding gap. And it doesn't seem like either side is willing to understand where the other side is coming from, which makes it lack of communication ever even more dangerous. Mm. You know, and Europeans would respond to Sui Tankai by saying that we need more NATO, not less. So if NATO included Ukraine, for example, or Finland and mm. Sweden at that point last year, um, then Russia would have been less likely to uh, invade Ukraine. Um, but but staying with China brief for a second, James, uh, you mentioned or your lead this week was sort of trying to analyze why the Chinese seem to be turning down U.S. calls for engagement. And I, I think your point was basically that they don't think the White House is sincere, right? Yeah, and I think there's a certain truth in that, because America is trying to contain China, um, or at least very large parts of the American um, defense security establishment are. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think China needs to be contained. I think it's a genuine threat to its neighbors, which is why they're so keen to sign up for U.S. alliances. Um which is one of the things that the Chinese fundamentally fail to recognize is the reason that the U.S. is in the region is because China's neighbors, by and large, want the U.S. to be in the region. But it's very hard for the U.S. to admit that because we've been trapped for so long in this language of, well, you know, we we just want them to play by the rules. We just want engagement and so on. Uh, Admitting that China is seen as a strategic opponent or enemy is really difficult. And the and that's also something that's hard to get the Europeans on board for because the Europeans aren't really in Asia. You know, you've got the Quad, you've got these sort of the UK elements, which are to some degree colonial byproducts or the, the UK's sort of great power ambitions still. But fundamentally, when it comes down to both negotiating the terms of how stuff like military, uh, potential military clashes, you know, the shipping counters and so on, are worked mm. out in a way that doesn't lead to war, the Europeans aren't in the game. Um, their whole deal with China is essentially trade and a little bit of human rights. They're coming at it from an entirely different perspective. And, of course, they, they all want different things out of it. The Germans want to sell cars. Macron wants to feel like a big man. The Baltics have you know uh, sympathies with Taiwan and hate communism at a very primal level. Um, mm. It's a very mixed picture. Mm. Cindy, I can see you nodding along there. That question of sincerity, do you think Beijing somehow views European leaders as a little bit more sincere in what they're trying to say? I think that Beijing at least on can see the economic calculus for the for Europe working with China is greater than it is for the Americans working with China, by which I mean the EU and China are each other's largest trading partners. It hears from Germany and France all of these positive messaging. And it knows when it looks at the components of that trade that, for example, the German car manufacturers need Chinese supply chains and need Chinese investment. And so 
from my conversations with Chinese officials, you know, they do see Europe as a different entity to America when it comes to China's place in the world, because they do think that the Europeans are much more um, pragmatic about things. Now, of course, for these officials, they also do count Germany and France as Europe. Whereas, as James says, you know, there's a vast diversity of opinions. It just has so happens that those who are more hawkish towards China are not the most powerful countries in the EU, at least. Uh, and now that the UK is out of the EU after Brexit, you know, the, you can say that the UK is very similar to the US today, uh, with, especially with Richard Sunak visiting Washington, D.C. But almost for the Chinese, the UK is not even a consideration anymore. And so on that uh, thought about whether or not the EU is the same as Washington, I think France and Germany dictate a lot and they look at the economic calculus, the hard truths there. And by the way, you know, next week, uh, Li Qiang, the new Chinese premier, is going to be visiting Berlin and then visiting Paris. You know, it's no accident that he's picking those two capitals. Uh, and I think we can expect that the red carpet will be rolled out as the Chinese want it to be. So you mentioned big man Macron. There's a lot I want to get into on Europe, um, on de-risking, decoupling. Um, but before I do all of that, James, I realize I, I want to spend just a moment on that disturbing incident in the Taiwan Straits. So I guess what we know is that the US and Canada held a joint exercise. Those exercises held jointly are rare, but not without precedent. Those were international waters. And China then informs the US it's sending out a boat. And that then cuts across uh, the US destroyer, very much a close call. How worrying is this? It's pretty worrying. And we, we saw a similar encounter in the air uh, this, the same week. There's clearly a desire in China to show, kind of to show the flag, as it were, um, and to try and intimidate the US side. But a lot of this is also about domestic messaging. A lot of this is about the military proving that it is on board with the overall agenda, that it's uh, that it has the will to confront the US. Um, and that's really dangerous because one of the overriding beliefs in Chinese strategy that I've heard from Chinese officers over the last sort of 10, 20 years is this belief in will, is this belief that essentially military affairs are, are a kind of green lantern type um, clash in which the side which has the strongest desire to win can win. Um, and in international confrontations, a sort of game of chicken. Um, and that's a really dangerous approach. That's the approach that authoritarian states tend to take in the run-up to clashes with um, which are disastrous for them, like the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, it creates this idea that you always have to be at your most confrontational, you always have to be showing your sort of strongest side, you can't back down. And while I think there are restraining factors in terms of overall you know, military action or confrontation with the US, those could very easily go wrong on the ground. The, the lack of the communication channels, the push for Chinese um, captains or other officers on the ground to to show that they are determined to confront, as it were, this could have disastrous consequences. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance. Those often end up framing our discussions. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. 
Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So we've spent a fair bit of time discussing, uh, I guess, the last week of news. I want to now um, just take a step back and look at whether America and Europe are aligned on China or how aligned are they. And Cindy, I guess one of the the big recent points of departure was when um, French President Emmanuel Macron visited Beijing with dozens of CEOs in tow. Um, doesn't quite sound like decoupling. And in fact, Macron has long been talking about a more independent European foreign policy. Yes, well, actually, Macron was harder in his rhetoric on that visit against America than he was against China, you know, saying that France mustn't be a vassal state of American foreign policy. You know, you really do wonder (laughs) who he thought was the bigger problem. And by the way, you know, this continental, as we would say here in the UK, continental approach to um, America's foreign policy has always been the case for France. If you go think back to the Iraq war, for example, when France very much refused to join uh, in the US-UK coalition. But the question for Europe is very, very difficult at the moment. You know, we are a continent here. As I've already mentioned, though, the UK has left the EU. So does the UK count as Europe in this conversation? I'm not sure. In its current prime minister, the UK is very much aligned with the US on China. But Europe as a whole, uh, you know, on the continent, in the EU, you know, there are the Commission and the Parliament who seem to be pretty hawkish on China these days. They're the leading economic actors such as France and Germany who want to continue that Chinese trade. There are, as James said, the Baltic states who have this kind of historical uh, and also reminded at present by the Russian invasion, aversion to China. And then there are also all sorts of variations in between as well. So the idea of having uh, the European Union having a united foreign policy, I think might be expecting a bit too much of what the structure was made to do. Um, and it was interesting, for example, in planning for this Berlin meeting between Li Tian, the premier, the Chinese premier, and Chancellor Olaf Scholz, that actually Scholz's team have said no to having any Brussels presence at the meeting. So they don't want the EU involved in this meeting that's coming up uh, next week. So I think that's very interesting. And going back to the question um, of, of this panel, I think rhetorically, there is a lot of alignment. Clearly, many Western actors believe that you cannot cut out China completely. You can't decouple completely. Ursula von der Leyen's uh, phrase of de-risking has now become very popular here and across the Atlantic. But what does that actually mean in practice? And that's where people disagree. Does it mean you can do technology transfers into China? A lot of disagreement on that. What are the critical supply chains that you want to uh, wean yourself off of? There's a lot of disagreement on that. What are the rhetoric surrounding human rights issues? A lot of disagreement on that as well. And one final thought I would say is that between the EU and the US, or between Europe and the US, I should say, on the China issue, the massive thorn in the side for unity there is the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, there are a lot of Europeans who are incredibly unhappy about what the Biden administration has done with the Inflation Reduction Act. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But I think that is just another reminder for Europeans that actually too often they are collateral damage when it comes to a certain America first approach, even when it comes to China. Just fascinating. So I'm going to ask us to park the IRA and de-risking for a moment and just come back to Macron. James, I'm curious how Washington viewed Macron's visit to Beijing and does the White House ever express displeasure? 
I think there's a certain kind of level of tolerance of the French um, for being <laughs> French, basically. I, I think, you know, there was the, the the kind of attitude I encountered most often talking with uh, the administration about it or with people involved in China work was kind of, well, what do you expect? They're French. You know, they're bitter about the fact that we bailed them out in World War II. If Germany or the UK did a visit like that, I think there would be much more genuine hurt and outrage in Washington. I think because it's France and because France has always had this kind of like Gaullist sort of, you know, independent, you know, we're not going to say Le Sandwich kind of um, approach to foreign policy, the Americans take it a little better. And they also know that, you know, they really did screw the French over on the AUKUS deal. Um, and mm. there's still bitterness about that. And they're willing to let that play out, I think, a little bit rather than poke that wound. So let's move to decoupling and de-risking. Uh, I guess we'll continue to park de-risking for a bit more. Um, but I have many subscribers, including Wali Khan and others, asking if it's even possible, especially for Europe, uh, to consider decoupling. Uh, Cindy, how how is this debate viewed where you are? And again, keeping in mind that Europe's been using a, a different term now for quite some time. Yeah, I think the idea of decoupling was always a bit of a, a straw man. Um, you know, it was never going to be possible to cut China out of European supply chains. Um, and I think Europe always realized that, regardless of where you stand on the hawk or dove scale for China. Um, even the most hawkish prime minister that the UK had, you know, Liz Truss said that we had to work with China on certain things. It was just, you know, a bit further along the way. So, you know, if you look at trade between China uh, and the EU, you know, it is still increasing. You know, it is still increasing. Um, you might be able to disaggregate that number and see whether or not it's slowing down, uh, whether or not it's growing at the rate that it should really be. And I think that would be very interesting to look at. Um, but there is a pragmatic acceptance that decoupling does not work. So, for example, in the UK, it's much more about critical supply chains. 5G with Huawei was a massive topic a few years ago. And, you know, the, the British have basically kicked Huawei out of the out of um, the British Telecoms network. But the Germans haven't. So there's a disunity there. Um, at the moment, there's an argument over semiconductors and, as I say, uh, batteries for electric cars. So these are the critical infrastructure that I think Europeans are really, really looking at. James, on the American side, just tell us a little bit about how the idea of decoupling began. Well, it's really originally a Trump administration notion, this idea that you could sever the connections um, economically with China, which would then give the US much more strategic space to act and would also revitalize the American economy through domestic manufacturing. I think it's it's worth noting that none of that happened. Like trade with China, in fact, increased um, and has continued to increase. There have been targeted measures at specific parts of the the Chinese economy, most notably um, chips. But overall trade uh, was hit by some degree to the pandemic, but has, policy does not seem to have had a huge impact on it. We've seen a certain amount of people reshoring from China, but American businesses are still in China on a vast scale. Um, I think decoupling was always kind of a uh, a dream or an ideal for American politicians that has been very hard to make happen in any way because um, American business is a very powerful force and American business still sees massive advantages in China and is very unlikely to rule China out entirely without some kind of catastrophic event. 
Mm. And I, I guess so much of this has to do with uh, um, partly the pandemic, but even before then, uh, I guess it was USTR, um, Bob Lighthizer, Catherine Tai's um, predecessor, who uh, in some ways was the intellectual uh, architect of that idea. But let's move to de-risking now. And Cindy, I'll come to you with this. Um, Ursula von der Leyen, you mentioned her earlier. She's been one of the big early proponents uh, of the term, um, became more popular during the pandemic, I think, for other countries as COVID cut off people's supply chains and forced companies and countries to think about managing risk. And then I guess in recent months, de-risking has also been adopted by several other Biden administration officials, the likes of USTR Catherine Tai on this program, in fact, many other top officials. So how do you think Europeans are viewing this shift in tone from the Biden administration? And I mean, maybe we're overthinking it. Can they even see and sense this shift in tone in the way that we're discussing it? I think it hasn't been incredibly obvious to Europe in the sense that um, I think there's also a sincerity problem here as well. You know, when we're talking about decoupling, you know, anyone who's in the re- in, in the field, as we've just mentioned, knew that decoupling wasn't ever going to happen in the way that Trump dreamed. So if it wasn't going to happen, it was always going to be some form of de-risking. So the Americans starting to talk about that almost doesn't make much of a difference right now to policy. The question is, what is the actual uh, manifestations of that de-risking, you know, because the Biden administration has started talking about it in the last half a year or so. But before that, it was the Inflation Reduction Act. And then since then, there's been the CHIPS Act. All of these things have implications for European companies. So is any of that going to change? And if not, then how does de-risking make a factual difference, um, a consolidated difference from decoupling? I think a lot of European governments are still waiting to see. I mean, Rishi Sunak in Washington today is going to try to ask, can the UK have an exemption, please, from the Inflation Reduction Act, such that UK car makers and battery makers are not going to be sucked into North America? If When the UK and the EU come and, and ask for a joint effort, if that doesn't work, then the de- whether it's de-risking or decoupling that America's doing with China, with a message to a lot of European actors, is that actually you're going to be collateral damage because there's the US, there's the big dog here, the China, China is the second largest economy, and everyone else just kind of has to, you know, find their own way in that. And I think that would be a mistake um, for the Biden administration to, to push away those allies when they, when they come. You know, and just to spend a beat on the IRA, I think part of the reasons why Europeans hate it is that this is billions and billions of dollars of immense subsidies that are being passed on to companies uh, to incentivize them to create jobs, mostly green jobs in the United States. This hurts European businesses and businesses everywhere, in fact. I mean, I think there are even sort of South Korean companies that have moved to the United States and created jobs here to utilize some of those subsidies. But it also creates a subsidies race. A lot of economists will say that that is often not an effective way to spur either job growth or innovation. And so, Cindy, I guess, you know, just to riff on this a bit more, how much does that disagreement on the IRA, how much does it play out into other arenas, such as China policy or even Ukraine policy? So, I mean... Ukraine, I think, is the thing that keeps Europe or keeps the West together the most at the moment. Um, 
in the sense that a lot of European actors can see that America has uh, invested disproportionately into peace on the continent by helping Ukraine in a way that uh, even European nations haven't done. Um, so they say so they bear that in mind that without American investment, without American military support, Ukraine probably couldn't have lasted nearly as long as it has. And there's a China element there too, which is that, you know, if China's going to court Berlin and Paris at a time when the Russian invasion wasn't happening, it would probably have more success. But the fact that China right now is ambivalent on its uh, position in the war means that for European for European leaders who have a war on their continent, you know, China is still a suspicious actor in all of this. So I think that's how that invasion, you know, helps uh, Western unity. Um, but when it comes to China, you know, there are certain actors in Europe saying that actually, if you want to get an exemption from the IRA, from the Americans, you just say, if you don't give us an exemption, we're going to get be get closer to China. And, you know, maybe that's part of the thinking behind Olaf Scholz meeting Li Tiang uh, in the coming weeks. It's kind of blackmailing, <laughs> but I guess I guess that's what happens, and I, it, it might possibly work. But I think you know when it, when if you're sitting in DC, you're going to think that Europe can't get that much closer to China for the Ukraine reasons that I've mentioned, and mm. so Europe doesn't. I mean, the EU doesn't need a reason most days to put in its own protectionist measures. So what it's doing is just putting up its own comparative subsidies package. Um, the UK post Brexit cannot afford a subsidies package. And by the way, I don't think it's ideologically uh, agreeable to a lot of people here anyway. And so the UK is trying to get an exemption instead. So as you say, Ravi, you know, it's a race to the bottom when one 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 actor starts to do it. Um, and I think it's ultimately a reminder that it's under Biden or under Trump. So I should say under Biden, the continuation of Trump's China policy um, is still really here. Yeah, indeed it is. James, so back to de-risking, it's not clear to me how exactly it is different in practice from decoupling. Do you think this is because the administration, the Biden administration, that is, um, hasn't done a good enough job of signposting what these things were? Or is it just that they're trying to sort of hedge and, you know, tweak the language along the margins, but keep on keeping on with their basic plan? I think they're trying to thread the needle between not making American business completely panicked and their strategic goals. Um, and I think a lot of this is about appeal to the Europeans. They chose the term de-risking expressly because von der Leyen used it. Like it was in some ways just an adaptation of the language in, this, in the way that you do when you're, when you're talking to somebody to kind of mirror them. You know, they wanted to show the Europeans they were listening. I don't think they have a strategic plan or a clear strategic plan, a clear strategic objective, or rather I think there are about a dozen people who are in, influential inside the administration who each have their own strategic vision on, on China. For um, to, And so I think a certain amount of the ambiguity and mess comes out of that. I think people mean very different things when they use de-risking. Some people are using it essentially as cover for decoupling. Some people mean very, very, very targeted kind of supply chain stuff. Some people mean we don't really want to do anything, but we want to seem as though we're doing something. Um, I don't think we should expect coherence um, on China policy when America is inherently incoherent on it and is likely to be incoherent for a long time to come because of the nature of the American of the American system. I do think that there is a degree of playing a little bit of rope-a-dope with China, though. I think that there's a realization from some of the more tuned-in people that the only way you really get any kind of decoupling, de-risking, whatever you want to call it, to work, 
is by getting the Chinese paranoid enough that they start implementing domestic measures which alienate foreign businesses. And we're already seeing that happening. We're already seeing Beijing get much more worried about spying, about infiltration, about ideological pressure. Um, mm. And that has, to some degree, um, really weighed on, on foreign businesses even more than any American measures have, because when it comes down to it, you know, the Chinese can actually arrest, your, arrest and hold your staff, for instance, in a way that the Americans are probably not going to. And mm. if you look at Hollywood, for instance, there has been, Hollywood is generally very pro-China because it's wanted the Chinese market. We haven't had, we haven't had anything but, you know, like pro-China messaging from big studios for decades. And you're starting to see that shift a little bit because Beijing clamped down so much on the film quotas. They, they've been allowing so few movies in. Uh, it started, uh, started up a little bit more post-pandemic, but ultimately it's going to be kind of Chinese domestic politics that shapes shapes this environment for foreign businesses and possibly ends up pushing them out in a way that perhaps Washington wants. Mm. Cindy, you know, I was struck by one thing James said earlier, um, you know, whether it's decoupling, whether it's de-risking, it seems that part of America's policy is to contain China. Mm. Um, and, you know, when people hear that word containing. I mean, I can give you the mood in Asia just this past week at the Shangri-La conference in Singapore. The idea of containment scares Asians because they want China to grow. Um, they want a growing China that then lifts up other economies in the region um, and improves their trade outcomes and the global economy as a whole. So there are a lot of Asian countries that worry a lot about the idea of two big powers or three big powers locking horns um, and trying to contain one or the other. How is the containment or the containing of China kind of idea seen where you are? I think that, as James said, no one likes to use the C word. You know, no one likes to admit that the C word is some kind of approach. Um, but I think that when you look at things like AUKUS, the submarine deal between UK, Australia um, and the US, it's hard to think how it's not containment, um, even if the UK foreign policy establishment won't admit that. Um, and then I think when it comes to continental Europe, you know, the EU, which still wants to do much more trade with China, similar concerns, I think, as those Asian countries. You know, there was a really interesting poll out just today from the European Council on Foreign Relations that actually said that most Europeans um, and most European businesses want business as usual with China. That in a Taiwan invasion, even in a Taiwan invasion scenario, it they wouldn't want Europe to pick a side, which I thought was really, really fascinating. You know, sitting here in London, often the rhetoric is very, very similar, I think, is to compared to what you have in DC, but in continental Europe, you know, what I'm hearing from embassy uh, representatives, you know, seeing from these polls is actually there's much more ambivalence there and much more thinking, you know, China's very important to our economic growth at the moment. So how can we retain that? And I think the other reason that people don't like containment is because containment seems to be seems to mean that you have to choose one or the other. You know, we we have been living in these two decades, three decades of globalization, but for especially for those Southeast Asian countries, they they do benefit from trading with both sides. But if the Chips Act or the IRA is a sign of things to come, countries are going to find it very difficult to be non-aligned in future without taking some kind of economic damage. That's what you're finding in Europe and in Asia. And so containment also concerns because you have to pick a side 
um, or at least you have to or take the economic damage of not doing that. And so that's going to lead to poorer prospects in the future. I do wonder, though, Ravi, for those countries, you know, how much countries like the Philippines weigh those economic concerns up against the territorial concerns in South China Sea. You know, that's a con- conflict, contradiction in their own domestic politics that they have to kind of weigh up as well, um, which I, I do find very fascinating. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also um, for many of the countries in that region, say India, for example, um, were China to be contained or cut off, they also might see that as an opportunity um, to attract some of the business that might leave uh, China. So I feel like there's so many different ways of of examining uh, outcomes for other countries. I want to take a couple of subscriber questions while we still have time. Um, Cindy, and I'll, I'll have the first one to you. It's by it's from David Camru at Science Po. Um, and his question is, is not the division rather that between the China hawks on both sides of the Atlantic who seek to make dealing with China a domestic polarizing issue and a certain moderation expressed in the rather sensible EU description of China as partner, competitor and systemic rival? Yes, that, that's definitely the division. Um but I think the the, the reason that the e, that Europe and America works is also it's a different kind of division is because when you're in Europe you have that mix of opinions which means that to have a united EU foreign policy is almost impossible you know if Germany and and France are leading the pack and they're refusing to go down the hawkish route even though the European Parliament has some incredibly hawkish MEPs, what does that mean for united European uh, policy on China? I think it's very, very difficult to go forward with that. And those are still the bodies that dictate subsidy packages or military support for Taiwan if it comes to that and that kind of things. But absolutely, those are the two ends of the scale. What's interesting, I I was talking to um, a set of European officials the other day, and they were saying that on the continent with some of these kind of middle of the rank countries, China hasn't become a culture wars issue. It has become in America and in the UK and in some Baltic states. Just that sheer diversity of opinion, it, it makes it impossible for an institution like the EU. You know, when Ursula von der Leyen, as head of the commission, wants to take things down a certain way, she meets a lot of opposition in that. There's a lot of contradictions in the in the European approach here. Um, and as I say, it's the institution of the EU that has to make certain big decisions. The UK seems to have decided post-Brexit to go along with the US. And that we are able to do that, you know, slightly more nimble, not having 27 other countries to bring along with you as well as different institutions. So, yes, yes and no, I guess. Mm. And this is an area of rare agreement um, in D.C. James, I'll have the last uh, subscriber question to you. This one's a, a little bit different from what we've been discussing so far. It's from Dr. Mosin, and he asks, does China have the ability to end the conflict and war in Ukraine? How optimistic is Europe? about China's role in the war? China does not have the ability to end the war in Ukraine. China could perhaps put a little bit more pressure on Russia, but that's about it. Um, And China doesn't have any desire to end the war in Ukraine for all the talk of, you know, well, we want peace, we're a neutral country and so on. Chinese, all the internal Chinese stuff is Um, pro-Russian. Chinese officials have been meeting with Russian officials, um, Chinese generals meet with Russian generals on a very regular basis. They get a whole stream of pro-Russian propaganda and anti-NATO feeling poured into the internal discussion system within the CCP. Um, And they want, frankly, they want Russia to win. I've seen almost nothing from inside the Chinese system which would suggest otherwise. And I think that there's been a lot of basically 
wish casting or the idea that somehow Russia and China will split based on, you know, the fact that people used to tell Henry Kissinger that they didn't like each other. Well, you know, they were telling Henry Kissinger that because he was Henry Kissinger. They knew who they were, they knew who they were talking to. Um, but you look at the scale of connections, and I don't mean this in any kind of grand conspiratorial sense. I don't mean that China was sort of, you know, planning with Russia beforehand. I just mean that the information sources, the conversations that Chinese leaders are having are so heavily tilted towards the Russian side um, that I think they they have absorbed the Russian viewpoint almost entirely. And it also coincides with their viewpoint, which is that they are being unfairly held down from their own like great restoration. Mm. And this is just one data point, but at Li Shangfu's speech, uh, in Singapore over the weekend, um, in about 60 minutes, uh, out of which 40 was a speech, 20 minutes of Q&A, Ukraine came up for about 60 seconds, and that was it. He was mostly talking about China's economy, China's security priorities in Asia, um, and it seemed a lot of the people asking him questions uh, also wanted to focus on that. Unfortunately, we have to end it there. James, thanks for coming back. Cindy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Great to have you both on. And that was James Palmer and Cindy Yu. Next week, we'll dig into one of the biggest sticking points between the United States and China, and that is chips. I will speak with Chris Miller, the author of the best-selling book, Chip War. Remember, if you want to watch these in video and live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. All of that's on foreignpolicy.com. You can also take a look at all of the guests we have coming up in the next few weeks. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. 
To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. <laughs>